Explore the night skies with our large range of high-quality telescopes. Whether you're a novice or an astronomy expert, we have the right telescope for you in our Australian Geographic e-store. Explore the whole range and find the right telescope for you today. Go to australiangeographic.com.au forward slash shop. That's australiangeographic.com.au forward slash shop. Hello, I'm Chrissy Goldrick and this is Talking Australia, a podcast by Australian Geographic. Today I'm talking to Valerie Taylor. Valerie, aka the Shark Lady, is a dead set Aussie legend. A vision in pink neoprene, Valerie became famous in the 60s for her groundbreaking underwater footage of sharks and other marine life. She'll share a few of her many adventures and how she came to be involved in Spielberg's infamous movie Jaws. So I'm really thrilled to be sitting down today with Valerie Taylor on this episode of Talking Australia. Welcome, Valerie. Oh, thank you, Chrissy. Uh, we're in your beautiful apartment here on the northern beaches of Sydney uh, from where we can see the ocean. Uh, how important is it to you to keep the ocean in sight wherever you live? I love to be near the ocean. We've always had something where I could see the ocean. Ron wouldn't live on the ocean because salt air is bad for film and we worked in the days of film. So this is the only home we've ever had close enough to the ocean to get salt spray in a southerly. Is that because the technology's changed and it's all a bit digital? (laughs) (laughs) The technology has changed. Film was a gelatin. And it reacted badly to anything salt. So um, you're a Sydney girl, born. Yes, born in Crown Street. You were right in the centre of Sydney, a city Mm. girl. But you actually brought up in New Zealand. Uh, Tell us a little bit about how that came about. My father, who started work when he was 12 years old, uh, worked for a company called Exide Batteries and worked his way up, did an apprenticeship, became an engineer, and they sent him to New Zealand to open an Exide battery factory in Lower Hutch, Wellington. Mm. War broke out. Well, they weren't about to put a family on a ship and send them back to Australia when they're busily putting soldiers on ships and sending them to Europe. So we stayed there, and all during World War II, We lived in a state commission house, backing onto the railway workshops. And my father and I on the weekends would go on our bicycles and go from house to house asking for lead, because you need lead to make a battery. And what was it like um, in Wellington? I mean, was it... I'm going to be sort of trying to find out where your sort of love of nature and your love of the ocean came from. Were you anywhere near the sea during those years? Is that something that happened later? The ocean was a bike ride away and my father and I, at very low tide, would go to the rocks over near Eastbourne or or just anywhere along the coast where there were rocks 
and he had a long stick with a hook on it and he took out crayfish. And was it, did you, would you get into the water? Is that what you do, get in and swim and swim down under the water? I wasn't water, much of a swimmer, but uh, I could hold my breath and if I went under it, it didn't matter. And a boyfriend of mine made a face mask out of a rubber tyre and um, some glass. Oh, right. It leaked, leaked all the time, but you'd let the water out. And I remember I saw my first, first piece of kelp with a spotty, that's a fish, near it. And I just hung there till I froze watching that piece of kelp and that spotty. I thought, this is a magical place. Did you come back to Australia when the war was over, when you were able to as a family? Um, we didn't come back to Australia until I was 16. Right. I left school on my 15th birthday, got a job, got sacked, got a second job, got sacked because of lack of education. I just didn't understand mon- money or numbers. I didn't understand money because I never had any. <laughs> and uh, then I got a job that I excelled at, and that was animation. Now, that's because you had drawing and artistic talent. And ha- had you been drawing from a young age before yes. that? Something they just loved to do? No, it was something I could do. Yeah. OK, tell us about those jobs. So that was an animation job. What, what was that? Well, the animation job I loved. Hmm. I got sacked from uh, oh, sacked from three jobs actually. <laughs> I got sacked from working in a nursery, getting it a bit wrong. Then I got a job selling tickets for a Ferris wheel and had trouble with the money. Then I got a job selling handkerchiefs in a department store called uh, McKinsey's in Petoni, and I lasted about four weeks. Then I got sacked. Then I got the job at the New Zealand Film Unit at Miramar and I sat down and I knew I could do this. And you never looked work, because I guess that's your first step into the world of uh, creative arts and, yes, and, and filmmaking and, and the yes, image. That's the what I could image. do. Mm, and, mm. I, I mean, just as well I had a talent because I didn't have an academic brain. Mm. And I still paint, of course, to this day. Yeah, coming on to that, I'm looking around your beautiful apartment here and I see some of your artwork on the walls here. So tell me how we go from there. That would have been, I suppose, post-war, early 50s. When did you first start scuba diving? When did you first actually don your first scuba gear? And, when and I was actually... 18. So what, tell me about that scuba gear because that would have been very early on in the development of the technology. Well, my parents bought a waterfront home in Willowbear Road, Port Hacking, and the man next door, uh, Carl Copson, was a ship's chandler, and he was sent a Healthways scuba tank with regulator, single hose, from America to see if he'd like to sell them in his big chandlery shop in the city uh, because they believed they'd be very handy for cleaning the hulls of boats and things. He decided he didn't want it. My brother and I were always down the waterfront, especially me, and he gave them to us, he gave them to me, he gave me this. Hmm. And the only place we could get compressed air was at Coogee, I think, from somebody called Priest. So we went over there and had the thing filled with air, compressed air, and we'd go down, never, no instruction, knew nothing. Mm-hmm. The thing in our mouths and go down and just off the front of the house and port hacking. 
And just taught yourself how to use it. and Taught ourselves. Never heard of the bends or anything like that. That all came later. (laughs) Mm. (laughs) But because there was so much life in the shallow water, Mm. there was no need to go anywhere else. Mm -hmm. It was like an aquarium. Mm. It's not now, but it was then. There was just so much life. And you, and from there you sort of obviously you found that you had an affinity with being under the water and you um, uh, you eventually uh, became a a, a a champion spearfisher. Tell us about the journey from uh, swimming outside the front of the house t- to that part of your life. Well, that was snorkeling, of course, which we did. I did started from the age of sixteen when I came to this country. Um, my father had a stomach ulcer. He was a sick man, lead poisoning. He kept getting lead poisoning mm. from doing the batteries and he couldn't eat meat. So I used to go down with a spear gun, and well, a hand spear actually, and spear fish for him. And so did my brother, as far as I can remember. And one day a guy called Brian McKenna saw me spearing fish at Bundina and he said, would you like to join a club? I said... What club? He said, a spearfishing club. We don't have any good women spearers. So I joined the spearfishing club. That's where I met Ron. Yes, that's right. We were just going to lead into that. So, yeah, tell us about that. I mean, by the time you met Ron, we were probably um, into the 1960s, something like that. Would that have been right? Or were we still in the, uh, the oh, mid-50s? No, no. Uh, late 50s. Late 50s. 1950s, yeah. Mm. And... Uh, I became the New South Wales champion. He was the New South Wales champion for men. I was for women. And we just got to know each other. And I might add, he was pretty damn good looking. (laughs) (laughs) We can see why this photograph you've got here in your apartment with his very sparkling blue eyes. He's a lovely blue. Yeah, he looks great, beautiful. And uh, he borrowed a Bollocks movie camera from a friend built his housing, and it was from old hand-wound wind-up bollocks, and started, asked me if I'd swim around in front of his camera. God, film star at last. <laughs> so I did. And we found that Movie Tone News would buy a 16 millimeter. it was all black and white, black and white film, and blow it up to 35 millimetre and pay £24 a sequence. That was huge money. But it had to be sharks or something extremely dangerous. Right. Preferably with me in a, in a bikini. As nobody else in the world was working with sharks, our little sequences, movie tone would pay us £24. That was huge. Mm. But they would have got a hell of a lot more selling it around the world. Mm. And they really set us on the path to making documentaries. Within, I suppose, 10 years of that, you were, I mean, you were both spearfishing champions, um, but you had an epiphany at some stage which made you decide to give that up. Yes. We could see that the marine life, the large edible marine life, was vanishing. We were making an impact on the life and we just finished the Australian spearfishing championships out of Maroochydore and around a coral reef offshore around an island. And when we went there, it was magic place. 
when we left, we devastated all that outer marine life. The competition. Just in the, in the short time of the three competition? Days. It takes three Goodness days. Goodness gracious. We both won and we both walked away and never did it again. We just went into making films. Uh, when we started working in South Australia on the Great White Shark, Rodney Fox had that idea. He was another spear fisherman. He was a South Australian champion. And Ron made his first film, which was called Shark Hunter. That was a big, that was sold to Channel 9. And then the next one was by, it was called Ron and the Great White. And that was organised and filmed by a guy called Bruno Velati. And that was for Italy. He was an Italian film producer. Then we went to, uh, we did Blue Water White Death in the Indian Ocean which is an American feature film, and that put us on the world stage, really and truly. We'll take a quick break and be back in a moment. We have a special offer for all our listeners. Subscribe to our AG magazine for six months for just $30 and save 33% on the newsstand price. That's three issues of our award-winning magazine delivered to your home for just $30. Plus, you'll receive exclusive benefits, including 10% off all our products purchased in our e-store. So don't wait. Go to australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia for our special offer. That's australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia. I guess most people's view is that the great white shark, which people seem to be almost obsessed with, is like the most dangerous shark. But I think your experience has shown that there is a more dangerous shark out there in the in the middle of the oceans that actually is more responsible for loss of life than any other species. Tell us about the oceanic white tip. Its name is Carcharhinus longomanus, same family as the great white. It only lives in the open ocean. And it is responsible for hundreds, probably thousands of deaths. You've probably heard of the Midway, the American ships yeah. went down and about five or six hundred men were taken by sharks. Oceanic white ship. Mm. Not the great white. The, there's not a lot of great whites anyway. And having been in the water with them, they're sometimes very easy going. You can handle them. You can't handle the oceanic white ship. It's king of its realm. We knew that they were very dangerous, but we read an article in the Reader's Digest by an, a German captain of a submarine and the British captain of a vessel, just an ordinary vessel, not a warship or anything, taking prisoners of war to be interned in South Africa. And the submarine sunk this vessel it had over 600 Italian prisoners of war on the deck, nowhere near enough lifeboats or life rafts. They were evenly dispersed between the crew, the officers and the prisoners. All the wounded were put onto the vessels. Everybody else had to hang in the water. They were told they must not on any account try and get onto the life raft or into a boat or it would capsize. The submarine 
surfaced. And this is almost word perfect from what the captain wrote. To my horror and shame, I saw more allies in the water than enemy. I could only take 11 on board. I took the 11 officers, bad thing, and promised to call for help when I was out of range of, of a submarine capture, which he did, and help did come. But they were in the water for 24 hours. It wasn't cold, so they, they had flotation. And this is the difference between personalities. Also, the Italians had lost their officers. The British are very officer-minded, I guess you'd say, and they do as they're told. When the sharks came, and they do, we've seen it many times now, the officers and the captain would yell, fight them off, boys, beat them, beat them, fight them off. It was, the Italians didn't understand English. And they climbed onto their rafts and into their boats and upset them and put the wounded in the water. And over 300 of them were taken. Mm, gosh. Before help came. Horrendous, horrendous. Yeah, horrendous. Yeah. Only two British. Right. No, there was a lot fewer mm. British. Mm. So we read this and realised if you could make yourself a place in the pack by being aggressive. And Peter Gimble and her husband, Ron, discussed this. Stan Waterman wasn't keen. His words were, I think this could be a little bit dangerous. Well, it was a little bit dangerous. A master of understatement, hey? Mm. But, and Peter turned to me and said, Valerie, there's no shame in not coming. You don't have to come. And I said, I'll go. And I stood on the deck of the Chariot 8 and looked at the coloured crew, who I was very fond of, looked at everything, looked at the sky, looked at the sea, looked at my husband and thought, no, the day I die, there's no fear whatsoever, not none. And because I was in the cage with Peter, Ron was in the cage with Stan Waterman. And we went down, and before we went down, I said, Peter, you go first. You get out first. I'm going to see what happens. He got out, and he swung. He had a big Araflex housing. In those days, metal. I couldn't even lift one up, so heavy. And he swung it around and around, hitting the sharks as they came rushing in. He turned around and came back, got me, and I swam out, and I had a stick. And I got the first case of shark arm. I've ever known. You've heard of tennis mm. elbow, huh? Mm. Shark arm. <laughs> Tell us about shark arm. How does From that? hitting the sharks. <laughs> is it hitting, hitting, right. hitting. Ah, okay. And, and is this uh, as, as they came into you? Were they targeting you? They were coming after you? Well, when we read the story in the Reader's Digest, there was one very interesting sentence. They always bumped before they bit. Ah, okay. And Peter and Ron had decided when they bump, we bump them back harder. And we did. And we made ourselves a place in the pack. We became accepted as other marine animals who had come to feed on the whale. There was plenty of whales, so there was no competition. And that was one of the most exciting 
times in my life. The water, I believe, was over two miles deep, or it was two miles deep. The, there were sharks everywhere, it was crystal clear. Water was cold, it was warm. There was a bleeding whale. We had our cages tied to the whale. What lunacy. <laughs> <laughs> we had our cages tied to the whale, so we wouldn't lose the whale. We lost the, the boat, but we didn't lose the whale. And uh, just to hang this, spinning around, just seeing who was going to come in one after the other. A lot of that footage was never used, of course. So you were in the cages and these were the oceanic white tips? We came tips? out of the cages. All ah, right. So you were actually swimming amongst those white tip sharks. We made a place for ourselves on the pack. Right. I had one moment of horror. Peter, we did this many times over a period of days, said he wanted to get up close-ups of the teeth tearing into the whale. So, and he wanted Stan and myself to protect him. So we formed a triangle with Peter in the middle and we all swam up to the whale. And when we got there, we couldn't see anything because of the blood. And I'm, back, I'm leaning up against the whale. I can feel the whale. And uh, a bit of a surge came through and the blood cleared and Peter started to film. And a whale bumped into my, the side of my back and started to shudder into the whale, not me. And I just feel this... It's just cutting, because they don't bite, yes. they cut. Mm. Cutting into the whale. And ugh, it gave me a sort of a horrible feeling. Then we came down, he got his shots, we all got in. The one who was in the great danger was Ron. He was standing on top of the cage taking photographs and a whale rammed him in the head. Right. And right. he said he, his mouthpiece dropped out mm. And he fell to his knees and he knew he was going to black out. And he knew if he blacked out, we couldn't even, weren't even looking at him. He'd be dead. So he struggled to retain consciousness and got back, the mouthpiece back and got back in the cage. Mm. But he was had a very bad bump on the head. So, so that was... So that was Blue Water, White Death. And that was a very successful film. It still is. Yeah, um, a real ground, groundbreaking. And uh, you've, you've actually trained sharks on other occasions, haven't you? You've managed to train great whites. Tell us about training a great white shark and why they're trainable. Um, like dogs and cats, they're trainable with food. The only shark I really trained was an accident and it was at Marion Reef in the Coral Sea we were working for the American Navy on shark repellents. And we had a few American scientists with us, all divers. There were a lot of, in those days, there were a lot of sharks there. There aren't now, they're gone. They've all been finned. But there were a lot of sharks and that they only wanted to test their repellers on potentially dangerous sharks. And this big nurse or tawny shark kept coming in and taking the baits. And Ron indicated me underwater Get rid of it. So I got some baits on a piece of string, dangled it in front of the shark's nose and swam away and it followed me and swam quite a long way, buried the baits and swam back. Ten minutes later, she was back. Ron goes, huh, you know, underwater and not underwater. Huh? So I got more baits, swam further, buried the baits. 
I was swimming back and she caught up with me. We worked in that position for three days, then we had a break and then we had another two days. My biggest job was to keep the shark, I now called her Sharky, away. And I had to, I would use almost half a tank of air taking her away <laughs> with the food, slowly give it to her by hand so she took a long, long time, then swim back and be, they'd be all out of air, I'd be out of air and we'd get out and we'd go back and I'd do that again. Eventually, I used to swim around holding her fin. She just used to drag me around the reef and it's actually on film and I've been criticised for manhandling a shark. What they don't know is we were buddies. Mm. She liked me. <laughs> and if I'd stayed there for the next year, we would have been together for a year. She was all to do with food. So obviously the, you became experts in filming underwater and sharks, so it wasn't ever going to be long before Hollywood came calling. And I guess one of the questions you're always going to be asked about is Steven Spielberg and Jaws. Um, but those shark sequences uh, for Jaws were shot, the live shark sequences were shot by you and Ron for that movie. Uh, they were shot in Australia. Um, tell yes. us why that was. Well, at that stage... The only people in the world who'd ever filmed white sharks underwater was my husband. And we worked in Australia. Uh, there's plenty of white sharks in other places, but they have a different personality. And uh, Richard Zanuck and David Brown sent Ron and I the galley proofs of a book called Jaws and asked us if we thought it would make a good movie. We both read it and Ron back back and said, yes. So then they said, the first thing we want to do is get the live shark footage, the shark footage. Uh, Steven Spielberg was just a kid. He'd just done one film called Sugarland Express, which was incredible. Mm. They sent us the film so we'd know who the director would be. And uh, so they sent out their production manager and a lawyer and asked us what they, we thought it would cost to get the sort of footage that was in the book. Ron said about $2 million. They were shocked. They said, but that's too much. They said, Ron said, it's going to take us over a year. You can't direct the shark like you can direct a horse or a dog or an elephant. Mm. You've got to wait for it to do something. And uh, so that's when they decided on the mechanical shark and that's when Ron went over to Hollywood to advise them on the look of the shark. Then he came back and we went out to get as much live shark footage as we could. They made three mechanical sharks. They called them Bruce. A left to right, a right to left and a front on. Anytime you see a whole shark, it's a local South Australian shark. So did you film the shark sequences without anyone there? You just got as much shark oh, we, footage as you possibly could into oh, the can? Oh, we had a cage and a small man and we had the production manager and... Right, so you did uh, shoot some scenes here in Australia Oh, yes, as well. definitely will, yes. Right, OK. I've even appeared... The, uh, the small man, the double, he was so small, he was a perfect man. He would not touch the shark and Ron wanted a shot of someone touching it, so 
I did that so one. You, you did that. Hand-peeled. You were the hand model. I hand for that. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, did, was he small so that he made the sharks look even bigger? Was that's that probably the idea? That, everything was half size. Yeah. To make our 14 foot sharks look 24 foot. But they were very good to us. They took us to Martha's Vineyard. Mm-hmm. We weren't allowed to work there because of the unions. But that's right. That's why you shot the shark sequences here. Yeah. Well, apart from the fact that you knew that those waters and you knew those well, sharks. Well, if we had known, nobody knew in those days that Guadalupe off Mexico had much clearer water and sharks that were just puppy dogs. Their right. white sharks are just... Right, so they just swim with them. They don't care. So they've got a different. They they behave differently, or they've got different personality. What, what they behave differently, and they have different personalities. So why do you think Australian great whites would be different in that way? They're very aggressive. I don't know why. Right. And, and when in South Africa, when we were doing blue water white death, Ron said he knew just by looking at the map where there'd be white sharks. And Peter Gimble, this is what happens when you are not college educated said, oh, no, no, I've done my research, we go north. And Ron said, no, no, go south. Well, some years later, the Natal Sharks Board wanted a film made and asked where we'd like to do it, and Ron said straight away, south. We want to go south Mm. off Cape Town, which we did. Yeah, and that's where they've got quite a big shark cage diving industry these days. That's exactly right. did that come out of those? That that? came out of that, yes, and... We didn't need a cage. Hmm. We lost our cage the second day in a storm and we had an entire film crew. We had to do it. So we did the whole thing without a cage and the sharks wouldn't even come close. They stayed about two to three metres away the whole time. So I think, um, you know, with Jaws, I mean, it's, it, it was, it's like a game-changing film because I think really until the film came out, people hadn't really, they weren't really aware of, of sharks and then suddenly sharks became everyone's deepest set fear for oh. swimming in the ocean. So I think the, the film itself has sort of been uh, kind of vilified for, you know, setting people uh, or, or, you know, appealing to their deepest, darkest fears of the ocean. So how do you feel about that, having done the film? I mean, is, is that uh, something that you've really worked... Because you've worked so hard in the intervening years to really kind of educate people about sharks and fascinate them and, and actually try and sort of deal with that, that, that kind of sort of rather simplistic kind of uh, opinion of sharks. Did that come out of the film? Did that, or was that just a journey that you were already on? Jaws had this incredible effect on the general public. Ron used to say, you don't go to New York and expect to see King Kong on the Empire State Building, so why do you think there's a great 28-foot great white off your beach? And Universal sent us all around America, Ron and I, we did every talk show in America, some of them twice, talking about great whites, how not to be afraid, Sharks, there's over 100 species. There's only three or four species that are potentially dangerous. You're not going to meet them, and so on. And, but it didn't work very well. The questions that we'd get were always the same. Oh, but there's so many people get killed. And Ron would say, no, not very many people at all. More people die on their way to the beach than, or, or drowning when they get there than by shark attack, it's very rare. 
but it's just dramatic and the press have a lot to answer for. They do, and it, it seems to me like it's not really getting any better now, it seems like. Um, well, the fear factor around sharks is, is as great as it's ever been, but, I mean, I, I think the perception is that this is a real and clear and present danger when you're out in the water, but the reality is it's still a very rare occurrence, isn't it? Yes, it is a very rare occurrence. It's occurring more, and people ask me why, and I think it's so obvious. There's more people in the water. There'd be twice as many people in the water now as there were 10 years ago. Hmm. We're very water-orientated. I can say it, and I've said it over and over again, don't go in the water late afternoon if it's overcast and a rising tide, ever. Don't go in the water early morning, overcast, rising tide, ever. Because that's when the Bull sharks come in to feed. They come in on the rising tide to see if there's anything dead. Or... Nature intends them to do this. Mm. So you're standing there waiting around, looking like a couple of white things. Mm. Sharks don't have hands. They can't go and feel your leg and say, oh, I don't want that. They feel with their teeth. Most shark victims pull away. They pull their flesh over razor shark's teeth. Take a great white. He's got sore-edged teeth, like a saw. You take a saw and you press it on a piece of wood. No matter how hard you press, you are not going to cut that wood. It has to move. Same with the teeth. Hmm. They have to move. Hmm. Or generally speaking, you move for them. Yes, well, you, you can't really... That's your natural reaction, isn't it, in a situation yes, right. like that? And I guess that's your, you know, yeah. your self-preservation well, kicking in in that moment. See, because of... I knew the sharks and working them. When I looked down and saw my leg in the shark's mouth, I, I didn't move. I made the shark move. I stayed totally still. And did you whack the shark? Or? Oh, God, yes. Yeah, so... Made it let go. Hmm. The rotten thing came back. By now, Ron's managed to get the camera rolling and he got it to see. He thought he got the bite, he only got the second bite. Mm -hmm. Howard Hall was looking the other way, I don't know why, he had a camera. And we were working for Hollywood. So I surfaced without any help, bleeding like mad, and called out to the camera crew on the deck of the bottom scratcher that I'd been bitten. I thought it was bad and they'd better get the camera rolling and the sound on. Always a professional. I would have loved to have got this bit of sound where the cameraman says that the director, uh, Wally Green, was panicking. And the cameraman said, Oh, don't worry about her. She's a bloody Australian and they're tough. <laughs> they behaved well. If you're going to get bitten by a shark, be working for Hollywood, whatever yeah. you're doing. You know, <laughs> the best plastic surgeon, helicopters, the whole raving bit. And I said to Alan Landsberg, don't worry, I'm not going to sue. I'm an Australian and I don't believe in suing for something that's basically my fault. But he just couldn't get over that. And I said, but, and I will sign your release, but you don't change the story, you don't make it any more dramatic, and in three years the footage belongs to Ron Taylor Film Productions. Ah. So we own it. Right. Great. And what was that used in? What was the final um, production? It was called Amazing Animals. 
Right. And was that a TV series? or a series? Yes, it was yeah. our special. Mm. You dive as much as you've ever dived these days. Not it's as seemed... much as I ever did because I have such serious arthritis and I don't dive around here because it's too cold. But tell me about diving and tell me how you feel when you get in the water. It's magic. I sit on the side of the tender and it's hot. And I've got scuba gear on and weight belts and it's difficult. And I roll back and I'm free. I can fly. I'm surrounded by wonderful creatures that are flying with me. And I can drop down. I can see something way in the distance and fly over to it. And I can do somersaults and roll around and hang upside down, do anything I like. And I'm totally... Comfortable at home. Wonderful. Well, look, Valerie Taylor, it's been an absolute delight to talk to you today. And um, we thank you for your time and for sharing some of your amazing stories with us. Thank you, Chrissy. So that's it for today's episode of Talking Australia with Valerie Taylor. If you have questions or comments, feel free to reach out. Write us an email, podcast at australiangeographic.com. Or find us on Instagram at Australian Geographic. And if you go to australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia, you'll find special offers for our listeners, including 10% of all products purchased in our e-store. So don't wait and go to australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia. Also, make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from, so you never miss an episode. Thanks for listening. Until next time.